This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future Podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Hey Brad, how's it going? Good Chris, how are you? Good, sorry about being a few minutes late, but uh, I had to rejigger my whole Zoom setup because I'm, you know, back-to-back Zoom meetings. Like all of us are living through nowadays. I, I, I can I can relate. That's uh, you know I feel like I wake up, I, I step in front of the camera, and then uh, six hours later I fall down on the couch and think too many people have seen me today. That's just not that's not safe for anyone. <laughs> I know the feeling. Oh man. Yeah. Well, at least it's a and it's it's worse because weekend. I I, sh- I sh- yeah it's a long weekend and. Um, Timing worked out well because my wife goes into the office once a week, but otherwise she sits next to me um, about six feet away every single day. So, uh, you know, finding time for something like this works out. Uh, you know, it gets to be a little bit tricky as we found, but I'm glad that we were able to, to make it happen. Yeah, no, this is great. This is great. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your uh, organization and what, what you're passionate about. Uh, so I actually... Um, I come from an education background. Uh, I have a master's in education policy and worked in nonprofits for a long time. Uh, but uh, I transitioned over to CA Ventures uh, about two years ago, a little over two years ago. And we build, uh, we're a real estate development company. We build all over the world, uh, primarily student housing, but expanding our multifamily portfolio pretty substantially. Uh, the pipeline's growing uh, quite a bit over the next five years. And it's, uh, it, similarly with student, we're moving into more international territory. We have some international projects already, but uh, we have I think six international or six uh, student projects opening in the UK in the next couple of years. And we're looking to expand more into Europe. So there's a lot going on. It's exciting stuff. And I love what I get to do because I get to translate a lot of my education background into what we are doing from an innovation perspective, because we're trying to build facilities that are uh, conducive to the overall university and student experience. Obviously, like I said, we're doing a lot with multifamily too, but uh, there's a lot of cross applicability for, uh, for those types of things, both in terms of productivity for work and uh, you know, the overall campus experience, which for the last year has been fascinating because you're really trying to replicate that, uh, you know, that home away from home more so than ever. This is great because this is two, these are two areas, both education and housing that I think are totally ripe for disruption because there's just, you know, we, I think we know uh, education is broken and needs fixing and we know housing is broken and needs fixing. So it'd be great to go into either one of those, but where do you want, where do you want to start? I mean, education or housing? Boy, uh, if we can, (laughs) let's, let's see if we can flop from education into housing um, and see, and see how we can, how we can make that transition work. So if I, it was interesting what you mentioned about uh, trying to make the experience as good as real life. But I, you know, mm-hmm. if you ask me, I think that the educational experience needs to be better than real life. And if you can leverage technologies to sort of break up the monolithic way education has been designed and make it a little more adaptive. I mean, what, do you see anything happening in that space? Yeah, I think that we are, uh, it's, it's not a controversial opinion to say that the education, the world of education has been fundamentally changed by the last 11 months. And I think that instead of going back to normal, the momentum is going to carry us into a further, uh, into further rethinking the way that we actually educate people and what is meaningful in, uh, in a university experience. The traditional experience for a long time hasn't been the value add that people have tried to pitch it as. You can access information much more easily than you ever could. Before, you really needed somebody to disseminate that to you, but now you have the opportunity to go out and explore. And I think that what we're looking at now is trying to, as you said, create an experience that is more true to life and better than 
that real life because for a long time, people were just taught things and not how to do things and how to think about things and how to interact. And I think that at CA Ventures, we have the ability to produce experiences for those, for our residents that can enable them to do that and take them outside of that cocoon. Uh, more collaboration. I think that it's going to be even more critical now than ever to learn how to work with people, but not in the same room as people. Um, everybody think that there will at least be some hybrid model of working from home. And so you won't be in the same place with your classmates like you used to be. And you may have universities that I think out of necessity will transition from a, an experience where students are on campus all, all the time to really being a truly global campus uh, in a lot of ways. And I think those are the ones that are gonna succeed is the people who can figure out a way to monetize the college experience, still make it meaningful, but also not have boots on the ground of 35, 40,000 person campus uh, because the ability to open that up is how they're going to address the enrollment cliff that's coming. Mm -hmm. But isn't that going to, I mean, are we going to see like a huge amount of disruption in the actual um, real estate space when it comes to universities? Because if you don't need to have that giant campus anymore, I mean, what's going to happen to the campus? I think that they're going to have to figure out ways to make that space work in, in the same way that shopping malls aren't all going to get torn down. They're going to be repurposed in some way. And they're going to have to figure out ways to make them functional for that space because it's it's billions and billions of square feet. And with universities, it's, it's millions of square acres and square miles that we're talking about here. And if, if they're able to turn that space into something meaningful, and I think that they can do that in a few different ways. Uh, I think that the push towards wellness has been huge. And I think that the ability to create spaces where you are not just crammed into a lecture hall. I mean, when you ask most freshmen at a large college campus, hey, what do you remember about your poli-sci class? Well, I was in there with 500 people. The professor didn't have a clue who I was. And it was just a very rote, perfunctory experience. Whereas if you can take that and, I mean, really take it outside. And I'm not talking about having class in Chicago when it's 15 below zero outside. That's not fun. <laughs> but use that space, um, use that space to to enhance and grow the experience. Everything from, you know, something we've looked at quite a bit is, uh, it sounds a little little too hippie, but, uh, you know, serenity rooms, but really wellness spaces, places where you're able to go and, you know, you have, a, you have a library, but a library now is just a gigantic study hall. Nobody's going there to check out books for the most part. Exactly. And so if you, can, if you can use that space and create something where you are truly disconnected, um, you know, I'm a big believer that there is a fine line between enough and too much technology and enabling people to still live and be mindful in that space while utilizing the tools that are at their fingertips, I think is huge. And I think that that's where universities can really find the sweet spot and thrive. If they give their students the ability to collaborate, but then also grow, because that's the, that's, that's the value of college. It's who you meet, it's who you experience and who you experience it with. And the, the cost of a Harvard education is not the information that you get. It's the people that you meet there and the connections that you have. And that's where having people that truly feel a connection to their university is going to be huge. And that's where making spaces where they can connect to that university is going to be equally important. Right. So you're kind of disconnecting from the physic physicality of going to the university and more connecting with the brand of going to the university. So you don't actually necessarily need to need to be there, but then you're repurposing the, the real estate to do completely different things. And I'm assuming some of that will actually turn into housing as well, right? I mean, repurposing mm -hmm. those, those spaces into housing. Yeah, repurposing the spaces into housing. Um, you know, I think that for a long time, universities made a lot of money and still do make a lot of money off of student housing and dorms that they put out. I think that the average dorm cost is still far more expensive than the properties we build in more class A buildings. You know, we're usually mm -hmm. in the top 10 to 15% of our market rent. But if you look at what you're paying for when you move into a dorm, you're paying more per year than you are to live in any of our properties. Oh, yeah. And it's that's ridiculous. insane my because we have really nice places. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's crazy because my, my son goes to Davis right now and, and his dorm is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new, brand new dorm and everything, but it is overpriced for, for where it is, for what it is. Yeah. 
we're, we're, we're actually, we have a project going up at, I'm assuming you mean UC Davis. We have a project going up at UC Davis uh, that opens next year, uh, this year, we're in 2021, I suppose. Um, and you probably see I mean, it out his window. Being He's very mindful. There's a new, there's a new set of buildings going up just outside his window. So maybe <laughs> it might be the same. It's, it's probably ours. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but, but, you know, this is a perfect example. We're trying to create our spaces to be hubs for our residents, but then also their friends and people who come there. We want our spaces to be a place where people feel welcome and they can come in. Because like I said, we have some really nice amenities. We have, you know, it, it it's not just pool decks and video game rooms and golf simulators. That's not what it is anymore. You know, we're looking at things like circadian rhythm lighting, where you're actually more productive just by being in our spaces. The ability to uh, create study rooms where you can fog out the windows, where you still get that natural ambient light, but you don't have the distractions of your idiot friends coming up and pressing their face up against the window while you're trying to get some work done. And, uh, you know, space, that's college, yeah. We, you know, you, you have to know your audience and we were all there. And if I saw my friends studying in a room, I'd probably go mess with them. But I'd also like the ability to flip a switch and say, leave me alone. Uh, but as I alluded to earlier, the ability also to take a break because one thing that you always see is you see people go into a room and they study and or they work or they collaborate. But if you do that for three or four hours, how often do you actually do something nonstop for three or four hours? And it's, it's you sleep. You sleep for three or four hours straight. And that's the only thing where truly unfocused, if you're a good sleeper, you are getting three to four hours of a consecutive action being done. Everybody takes a break. Everybody either looks at their phone or just, you know, leans back and closes their eyes. And we want to create a space where you can, you don't have to stay in the room. You need a physical disconnection from the space where you're working and where you're doing something else. That's been, that's been known in psychology for a long time. So little things like a lockbox where you can reserve your room, but you leave your laptop, your phone and your keys and just stand up and go for a quick walk and clear your mind and then come back. Those are the kinds of things that will allow not only you, but if you have friends that live off campus or not in our property, they can come there and say, this is the best place to work because I'm more productive because I can actually enjoy what I'm doing and now we have a connection to the campus as a uh, as a development, as a housing provider, and you know we we try our best to really partner with the universities that we work with because we're right there. We are technically considered off-campus housing because we're not a dorm, but we have a property in Indiana that is literally across the street from the football stadium. That's as on campus as you can get, and so we want to make sure that we have that presence where we are being good stewards to the mission of the universities, uh, as well as to our residents. Mm -hmm. Well, do you see that the, do you see that this, the system of sort of like the monolithic, you know, earn, uh, earn a degree, come into the, come into the university and spend your time there. Do you think that's all going to break up? Like we're yep. not going to have those kind of monolithic blocks of education that people have in their lives right now. I think that we will get to a point in the next, uh, probably six or seven years um, where we really have to reevaluate what the purpose of a university education is. Uh, you know, we're looking at a decline in the actual population of people uh, mm -hmm. as a result of the recession in 2008, 2009, the birth rates were lower. There are about 250 to 300,000 fewer college enrollees just by sheer volume of bodies that will occur in 2026. And that's only going down as birth rates go down. And yeah. so there are gonna be universities, probably initially those you know fringe universities that are struggling to hold on financially that are going to either have to merge or shut down. It's already starting to happen. They can see the writing on the walls, but then people are going to start looking at that and saying, where is the value in this? What am I getting from my 5,000 person university versus a two, 2,000 person university versus a 22,000 person university. And where does that come in? I think that we're going to see a lot of consolidation. And I think that the true monolith that you're talking about, there will really only be probably 45 to 50 of those types of institutions in 20-ish years. You know, we'll see, you know, your big 10 schools, uh, your, your elite schools, the IVs, and then the non-Ivy Ivies, uh, you know, Stanford, University of Chicago, uh, Berkeley, you know, those really high caliber schools that have both the endowment 
and the resources to make the $100,000 education that you would pay per year at University of Chicago right. worth it to actually attend that. But it's going to become, there's going to, once it becomes more mainstream to not go to college and to attend a junior college and still make those connections that matter and be trained in the field that you think you want to go into, because that's the other thing. We're asking people to make $200,000 investments on a hunch of what they might want to do when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. It's never been a fair system. Just from that perspective alone, I didn't, I think I ate M&Ms for lunch every single day when I was 18 years old. <laughs> I, you know, things, things change over the next 10 years. I've got a, I've got a nice salmon thawing for dinner that I'm very excited about. But if you told me that 18 years ago, that's not the case. And so I think it's more about, it's going to be more about equipping skills and being more hyper-focused in that. And that will be to the detriment of these schools that you see in that like 100 to 200 rank range. And college rankings aren't everything, but people still look at that. That's ultimately something that is going to matter, whether it should or not. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to, there's, there's going to be a reckoning that comes along with that. We're trying to be really focused in the way that we develop and hitting those universities that are sustainable and that are going to stick around. But there's going to be, there's going to be some college towns that are really desolate coming up. Oh, yeah. And it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a sad reality of the situation from an economic perspective, because, you know, we're talking about fewer people on campus and how they're going to use those spaces. What do you do when a campus disappears? You know, what yeah. do you do when you're a 30,000 person university that financially is just barely holding on and you're not in a warm weather state and the appeal just isn't quite there to get there and suddenly your, your enrollment drops to 10,000 and you're not financially viable anymore. What happens? Yeah. yeah. But isn't it possible that those guys who could just re, just build, rebuild themselves online, kind of like what's like a circuit city type of thing where we just eliminate all of our physical locations and go, okay, now we're, you know, an online version of this and, you know, everybody can stay wherever you are. And then they could like double, triple, quadruple the enrollment if they needed to, or, or does that special sauce just doesn't translate to, to being online? I think it, it, it trans to being online, but what's the difference between this and they're going to say, why, why'd you pick us out? Uh, right. What's the difference between school A and school B that are similarly ranked and they have, um, you know, they have similar offerings and one is on the East Coast, one is on the West Coast. And it's just going to be, I think it'll be great for the consumer, for the mm-hmm. student because it'll drive prices down and that's standard economics. But the special sauce is going to be the entity, whether it's a university or whether it's an offshoot of something like Khan Academy that discovers the correct way to deliver information while still making you feel like you are getting the elements of an education that matter, that that working with others, that collaboration, that interaction. We're still, we've experienced this for the last 11 months during Zoom calls. Human interaction is so different than the second or half second that you see. And depending upon the platform, the microphone cuts in and it cuts somebody off because it can only have one audio channel. I mean, these are really technical things, but it changes the wiring of your brain about how you have conversations. And uh, I I think it's going to affect the, uh, the dialogue between people once we get offline a little bit more. But ultimately you need to, you need to figure out how to replicate the best parts. And that's what I think, that's where the innovation takes place is what are the best parts of an education? What's the best part of a high school education? What's the best part of a college education? And then now how do we translate that? And now how do we make you feel connected to that? And then ultimately, how do we monetize that? Because everybody's gonna wanna make some money off of it. I mean, (laughs) universities are nonprofit, but yeah. But I think the, 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 the important thing is to look at it as an opportunity to make the interaction better than real life, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to saying, let's see how we can duplicate this as closely as possible. And, you know, people try it. I mean, I, I, I took a course, I'm doing Stanford MBA right now. We took a course in this 3D environment called Verbella. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was basically like taking a course in Second Life. And it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't hear yeah. the couldn't hear the lecturer. It was like, it was like, it was totally awful. I think I was like three quarters of the way into it. And I said, you know, this is, I'm not learning anything. I'm not getting anything. I'm just fighting with the technology. So we just need to, you know, do better than real life in some areas. 
because it was probably being delivered in the way that they would typically deliver that in front of a classroom, because that's exactly. how everybody's been trained to learn and to deliver. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that what you are describing is a perfect example. And I don't actually think that the tools exist yet to deliver what we're talking about, to, for us to truly interact in the way that if we were sitting across the room and I said, if we were just having a normal conversation, I was out in California talking to you and we were having a great time. And I mentioned that I have a dog and I want to show you a picture of my dog. Well, right now I'd have to pull my phone up and hold it up awkwardly to the camera. And what my preference would be, would be to just, you know, put it right there in front of you. And I know that's a silly, small example, but it's not easy. And people want, if you're going to take and rethink something, you need to make it just as easy or easier than it was before. And that's where I agree. You have to, we have to rethink the way we've done education because for the longest time, we've just done it because that's how you do it. And people were generally successful, we decided, because that's how we did things. But we haven't evolved the lower levels of education in decades. I mean, we're still learning history by memorizing dates and events. And the best Who teachers out there don't learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, depending upon your depending upon your version, it may not, you know, you, the dates are flexible and the events are, you know, maybe they did or didn't happen. Uh, but I think that that is a, you know, I think that we are in, uh, I'll, I'll try to straddle the line here. I think that we have a lot of different things happening in the world as a result of a failure to teach critical thinking and that particular mm -hmm. skill and independent evaluation of, uh, of information. So to that end, I think that there is a lot of room to rethink what we're doing. And I, I'm not sure if it's a, I think it's a chicken or the egg and I don't know which one's the chicken or the egg, but once we figure out how the information gets delivered, I think that then informs the spaces and not the other way around. But until then, I'm happy to help inform that decision-making process and try to give everybody the tools that they need, at least as far as I can, to, to do what they need to do. Very cool. All right, so let's pivot to housing. Mm -hmm. Tell me why housing is so broken. I mean... <laughs> Especially, I don't know if it's like what it's like where you are, but around here, you know, you're spending $800,000 for a tiny little box beside the BART station. And it just seems to me mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculously expensive. The, you know, there's so many regulations keeping it from really blowing out and being, being incredibly innovative. You know, what, what do we have to do to, to make housing work better for people? What do you like best about owning a house? Ah, uh, what do I like best about it? Uh, it's just the, just the, I don't know, just the security, I guess, that, that, that I have from, from owning a house. Just knowing that yeah. it's almost more of an investment than anything else. It's like, okay, you know, this is great, but, you know, it'd be great if I could like live somewhere bigger and more attuned to what I was looking for at a, at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. And, and you want, the stability, but also the flexibility as your needs and lifestyle changes. And exactly. I'm not in a position where I can buy a house right now, but we, this is the longest I have lived in one single place in my, outside of my childhood uh, mm -hmm. is the apartment that I live in and that I rent every month. And I think psychologically, um, not know, knowing that this is not where I'm going to live, you know, forever, but for the next 10 years is tough because you do things and you decorate and you want to, um, you know, you want to make it feel as much like home as possible, but there's always a ticking clock. And from the housing perspective, you know, the, I, I, I don't think people think a lot about why they live where they live. I know why I would live in California. I'm staring at 14 inches of snow at my window in Chicago. <laughs> Windchill is supposed to be 35 degrees below zero on Sunday. And Every day I, I look from November until March and I think what on earth is wrong with every single person in the city, but I love it here. My friends are here. My wife's family's here. You know, it's, it's, it's a great place. It's a great Same place to be I'm from Toronto. I, I, I totally feel you <laughs> because I used to live in Toronto. So I know exactly what you're going through. Yeah. And so if somebody said, Hey, you have to pay and, and Chicago's not cheap, but if somebody said you have to pay an extra 25% premium to live somewhere that's warm, I, I, you know, I'd probably think about that right now, you know, talk to me in June, it's, it might be a different conversation, but uh, I think that 
you know, there's, there's a lot of sociological research out there about why people live where they live. And most of the people don't move because their family's there or their friends are there. And, but that doesn't change the fact that somebody who lives in Southern California, where prices are incredibly high, you still have to have teachers there and you still have to have, you still have to have people who are not earning in the top 20% of, of, of an average income category. So I, I mean, housing, I'm not sure that housing is broken. It's it's just the way that we value things that is probably broken. Humans are terrible evaluators of value. And um, there is a, you know. No, you're, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Because it, it come to think of it, I'm just, th- I'm just thinking about, you know, these, these, these areas are just so ridiculously expensive and you see things like mobile homes going for, you know, four or $500,000 mm-hmm. and, it's like, that is not what that is valued. But for some reason, no. you know, we, we, we can't be realistic about the value of things. It's, it is probably one of the two or three biggest weaknesses of the human brain is we are, we're just horrendous at valuing, like truly assigning a, a value to something. Mm. And I've, I've thought about this a lot over the last year because I have a 13 month old daughter. So she has spent the vast majority of her life in quarantine. And Mm. we, we rented this place, not thinking that we were going to be having kids anytime soon. I love her to death. If she ever sees this, I want her to know that I'm very happy that she is here, but (laughs) that was not necessarily a plan. And so, but I've thought a lot about, you know, okay, what would quarantine have looked like if we did not need the stability of, you know, a foundation and a roof and walls Mm -hmm. and how much space do we really need? My wife and I, we're not big on, on stuff and things and we don't need a ton of space. And so we could easily downsize in terms of space. But then I talked to my parents, I'm originally from Nebraska and every house out there is huge because land is cheap and it's cheap to buy a home, you know, a, a 4,000 square foot home in Nebraska, you can get that for $300,000 without much of a problem. Right now it's a little inflated because of the transition between urban and, and suburban spaces, but you get 4,000 square feet for $300,000 in, in Omaha, Nebraska. In Chicago, if I want a 4,000 house, I'm not getting that anymore. I'm not, it's a million and a half dollars. And it's- And here it's, here it's 400 square foot house. <laughs> it's a million. <laughs> exactly, for a million and a half dollars. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I think about why I'm here and, you know, why they're there, their family is there, their friend there. My, my friends are here. Half of my family is here. Uh, if we're counting, if we're counting my wife's, which they would want to be counted in that, I think. And so to your question of, you know, where is housing broken and where is it not broken? Um, I think that it, it really comes down to what is actually being provided by housing and, what do we want out of our spaces? And I think that is, I mean, I think a lot of houses and apartment complexes right now make absolutely no sense because of the way the world is operating and the way that it will continue to operate. And I go back and forth on buying versus renting for a very long time. I love the ability to accumulate assets and I love the ability to, uh, like you said, it's an investment. You know, right now I am, I am, sending, I'm writing a check and it's gone. And there's really no tangible value that's attached to it other than I love my landlord. He's great. He lives above us and I'm helping him pay his mortgage. And so that's great. You know, somebody's ultimately getting somewhere from this, but um, you know, from that perspective, I don't know. I'm willing to admit that I don't know what my life will look like in 10 years or 20 years. And I don't want to pretend that I do because if you'd asked me 10 years ago, would have been dead wrong. And that's okay. I, I'm okay with that. And I'm not sure a lot of people are, but I think that flexibility in housing, the ability to modify spaces. I mean, if you could really design an apartment building or a condo building any way you want, wouldn't the ideal situation be, you know, you let's say you buy a two bedroom place, but then there's this, there's somehow this option where you can remove a wall and suddenly it becomes a three bedroom place and the place next to it becomes a one bedroom place. And the owner of the building has figured out a way to monetize those equally so that your rent shifts from $2,000 a month to $2,500 a month when you remove that wall. And the one bedroom still is able to hold enough value where they maybe they're even making more. I don't have to move. I get a new place essentially. And all I have to do is reorganize some furniture. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm with you on the, I on think the whole that, idea. I think that's, and I think they're trying it in a few places, right? Aren't there a few places that mm -hmm. they're actually experimenting? They're, they're experimenting. And I just, I think that because it's not being done at scale, the, the cost is a lot higher. Uh, you know, the, the building, the efficiencies that come with development and that come with building. And then the second you get into operating costs, the, the, every, every dollar of operating cost that you add for, you know, a multifamily housing unit, somebody looks at that and says, okay, well that, you know, that depreciates this much over this amount of time. And so everybody's trying to figure out a way to get everything in right up front and then not have to do a whole lot to monetize things going forward. And so that flexibility, I think it's going to, the, the, the back end of housing and of real estate is something that probably needs to shift as much as anything else and figure out where that value is generated from. Um, but I think that, you know, not to be not to be cynical about it, but as long as people want to make money off of people living somewhere, there's always going to be inefficiencies in the system on one side, uh, on one side or the other. Right. So I guess a qu another question I have is, can we build a reasonably priced unit, which we can just sort of plonk down? I mean, people have talked about tiny homes and stuff like that, but everything I see is very expensive. I mean, in San Jose, where I live. Uh, if you wanted to build an ADU in your backyard, I mean, I think it's like the minimum cost is like 120, 150,000 for an ADU. And I'm like, that's just seems ridiculous to me that we need to spend that much money to build something a person could live in. I mean, I, there's must mm -hmm. be some number that's way more reasonable than that to build, you know, a box for, for somebody to live in or whatever shape it is just for somebody to live in. So I, I'm assuming that you, the housing industry has probably figured this out. They know that there's a box that we could build that would work, but for some reason we're not building those boxes or maybe they haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. I think, I think that there's, there's a few elements at play. I mean, I think 3d printing as it becomes more and more mainstream and more and more efficient, that is going to introduce a lot of ways to cut down costs in the, uh, in, in that CapEx phase where, uh, you know, you can produce things more efficiently but the pushback to that is going to be people. I, I saw this complaint the other day. They're tearing down a strip mall uh, not too far from where I live, and they're building an apartment building. Nobody's ever said, gosh, I wish there was another strip mall. So on that end, everybody's like, okay, great. We've got more housing. This is good. But then you have the other side where people are complaining, oh, it's another soulless box where it's just you know this obsidian color, and it looks like everything else. And people want that variety, and they want that design. And Speaking as a former architectural tour guide, I love architecture. I think it's beautiful. And it is one of the most visible forms of artwork. It's like amazing yeah, in Chicago. I love Chicago for that. It's, it's incredible. But you immediately, the second you get fancy with a design and you go non-standard where, you know, all of your O2 units are the exact same and all you're doing is stacking them on top of each other. Now it gets really complicated and now things get more expensive and, you know, you have, I always think of the example of, do you know the Aqua Tower in Chicago? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a wavy building. It's got an undulating surface, huge, huge problems with heating efficiencies in there because they have these concrete balconies. They're essentially heat sinks. And so it distributes yeah. heat very poorly. And, oh, cool. but it's, a, it's one of the most beautiful buildings out there. And so yeah. you look at that and you think, okay, well, do we want to just build glass boxes or do we want to build aesthetically pleasing things? And there's, I think that's another element to it. I think that if everybody said, hey, we're fine with these just obsidian boxes that look exactly the same and they can be mass produced. And we know as a real estate development company, we can we can essentially buy 500 floors and buy the, the exact materials and everything else and mass produce that, that things get cheaper and things get more efficient. Mm -hmm. But everybody wants their own unique space and everybody wants their space for them. And... So it's a hard um, problem. It's not, not something, it's not easy to create unique spaces and for nothing or for, for yeah. hardly. Is it unique space because of what's on your wall or is it because of the layout? Does it work for you uh, from a physical perspective or is it the aesthetics that work for people? And right. I, there's no universal answer to that, which, which is the complicating factor. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I live in a building that I think is close to hundred years old. I, I think it was built in the twenties or thirties. I love it. I think it's great. It's got character. It's got charm. There's nothing, there's nothing efficient about it though. I mean, there's, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's what it is. Mm -hmm. So, the, but there are, so you're saying that there are ways of building plain boxes 
that are relatively inexpensive. So if we're talking about somebody who just wants a home, because I mean, that's the biggest mm-hmm. thing in these urban areas where people are just totally priced out, right? There's no way that they can possibly own anything. It's just impossible because yeah. I, I, I I love, there, there was this example. You're talking to one of them. <laughs> well, there was this example on Quora where they were saying, well, why are people complaining housing prices are so expensive? All you need is two, all you need is a couple of engineers who are both working 200, who are both making $250,000 a year each. And they have no problem owning a home in the Bay Area. And the guy was totally ripped <laughs> to shreds. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. come on, not everybody's like that. What about people who are like, who are teachers? Like you said, I mean, there's people who they yeah. just do not, they're not in that position where they can afford a home. But it seems to me that there's like, there's a demand there, but we're just not supplying what these people I mean, the, a lot of the times the cost isn't the materials though it's the land i mean right. sears used to sell homes out of their catalog you used to be able to get built like build by numbers homes from sears back in the 50s yeah yeah and exactly and you can buy you can buy tiny homes on amazon i think they're like twenty thousand dollars and they're yeah. very nice and they're very reasonable and all you need is an extra three or four hundred thousand dollars to find some land to put it on in chicago that's the trick <laughs> and that's the problem right there so that's you know that that's where they get you um, you know, if you find if you find those engineers making 250k each, but they figured out how to manufacture more land, now we're talking. Uh, and that's you know that's really where it comes back to. The, we stack you know, them on the top of each other like they like they do in Ready Player One. You know, where you stack the. I was just gonna say, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's living in trailers on top of trailers, and there's ladders getting people up to to where they need to go. Uh, but that you know that's where it comes back to the value assessment of where I live and if there is an argument against cities not fully coming back from the suburban flight that we've seen, it's exactly that, that the value of being in a, for a shorter commute is no longer there. If you're not having to commute every single day, a, you know, a two hour commute from the suburbs back and forth doesn't sound that bad. If you only do it once or twice a week, if you have to do that every day, yeah. well, that's, that's terrible. And now that that calculus changes, I, uh, you know, I, I think that there is a reevaluation and a reassessment of what city spaces are truly functional for in the same way that office spaces are going to have to be thought because the argument, I mean, I'm increasingly convinced that the reason work from home didn't happen sooner is because everybody just was like, well, what are we going to do with these office spaces? We can't let everybody work from home. We'll look at us all this yeah. space and exactly. it became a little bit of an ego. Well, some costs. Look at, look at the size of this thing. Yeah. How much money we've spent on maintaining and building this thing. That's why we don't want people to go home. <laughs> Right, exactly. This is, uh, you know, my company is in the process. We're literally building a new office building. We started it prior to the pandemic and we're, we're finishing it, but we've modified the intent of it along the way. And, you know, we have hoteling spaces in there and op- opportunities for people to come in as needed or as wanted. And, you know, we're being really mindful and thoughtful about that. But that doesn't change the fact that if you have a position that does not need to be in the office and, and like be around people physically around people in a collaborative way every single minute of the day then people just aren't going to be back that often because right. i'm getting two hours of my day back most most people with a healthy working attitude are taking those two hours to you know do something that isn't sitting in a car sitting on a train i you know i just roll out of bed and get my daughter to daycare and then i start working and but i'm more productive as a result of it and on the back end that produces more free time and not need I don't need to espouse the value of working from home, but you know, the appeal of living in Chicago, if we didn't have the social connections we did here, would be a lot lower. Because why on earth would we pay to live in a city where there is not that not that necessity to be close to work when and then that then 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 you get into the whole um to the cost of housing and the efficiencies of housing. Because it would make more sense to you know, from a financial perspective, if, if a teacher makes X amount of dollars teaching in a specific city, you know, we get back to the centralization of education. Why can't that teacher at that educator, if somebody figures out the right way to, to deliver this, why can't they be located in Cincinnati and teach people in Lexington and in Lansing and yep. be centralized there? They live where they want to live and where they can afford to live. And but then uh, they're also able to to do what they want to do. And I think the democratization of being able to do what you want to do and still have a home could be a potential really positive from this. Right. What about the theory that some people are, are postulating that once all this sort of starts start shaking out, the 
prices within cities are going to drop so precipitously that you're going to see people being able to go back to them again. You think that's going to happen? I think that it might, but that's, I guess, if you're coming back to it, that implies they could afford it in the first place. And right. so they, I think the people that are leaving cities a lot of uh, now, if they're doing so, they're doing so by choice, assuming they're still employed. Obviously, if you're unemployed and you leave the city because you can't afford to live there, that's a completely different scenario. But if you still have your job and you're just saying, I don't need to live in the city anymore, I'm going to move to the suburbs, then what, what's their appeal for coming back? And I think that the real danger zone is that prices do drop precipitously and it does become incredibly affordable to own a home and investors come in and buy everything up. And then you have uh, an ownership structure that doesn't work for anybody except an even smaller number of people. Right. Right. Interesting. So, I mean, I'm wondering when the shoe is going to drop. So a lot of people are thinking that the pandemic is was supposed to be a temporary thing, right? But then, of course, now we have, like, this is the new normal. But you still see $800,000 boxes beside the BART station. So when is that going to, do you have any idea of if or when that will ever change prices? I think, I, I think it's still another two years. I think that it's going to be, I think everybody, there's still... There was the initial people who adopt who adapted and said, I'm out of here. And now there's a lot of people that are sitting back and saying, okay, do I actually believe that true work from home is going to be a norm going forward? Is this actually a new normal? And you know, if people have compared this to a lot of different major events that shifted the way that society operated. You know, you see the 9-11 comparisons a lot between how the airport and travel interaction occurs. But those were really immediate responses that needed to be taken to address an issue that was identified. This is a philosophical shift. And I don't know that a lot of people either believe the shift, want the shift, or are, are prepared for it yet. So I think there's going to be a little bit of, there's if people really want to get their workers back in the office and really want to build this back up, then I think they'll take advantage of that and they'll say, okay, everything is back to normal. Let's go. You've been vaccinated. You're safe. This was this was a fun year where we all worked from home, but now we're going to come back and they're going to try and uh, if they want to, they will try to strong arm people back. Now, the some people will say no and they'll go find somewhere that will not force them to do that. But I think that there's a little bit of a waiting game. And I think that if we are having this conversation a year from now and things are still the same, then you're going to start to see those drops. Then you're going to see people say, why am I in the city? What am I doing here? I've got three kids and I just want to have a minivan and be able to take them to soccer practice and leave them outside after dark. And then that's when they get out of here. But for a family of three to pick up and, and hightail it out of the city right now, like, oh, maybe, I, maybe I need to be close to work still. And maybe I don't want to leave the city and maybe the city isn't dead. And I think that there's two narratives that are being pushed right now. The city is on its way back and it is... I think there's going to be a few little tipping points that are going to have major impacts going forward. And one of the biggest ones is how companies, especially big ones with large spaces in downtown areas, address the work from home issue. And that will drive a lot of it. Right. So it's like, it's kind of a gray area. Like you're saying the, the people, we're still in this gray area. We don't know which direction it's going. So everything's staying relatively the same because we're still going under the assumption that things are going to go back to normal at some point, we just don't know when, and we're not think, going to purge into this is normal. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that some people think that this is, this is the new normal. Some people yeah. either are betting on that or want that to be the case. Uh, and then there are other people saying, this is not the new normal. This is the, this is the pandemic. This is the quarantine. This is just how it is for now. And, you know, everything changes. We can go back just as easily as we went there. And, I mean, it took three or four weeks for everybody to just be like, I guess I work from home now. And that's what I do. It didn't take that long. Humans are pretty adaptable. Yep. And I mean, Salesforce is building a 60 story building in Chicago. And they just announced yesterday that they're going to continue building that 60 story building in Chicago. Part mm -hmm. of it might be because they've already, it's a sunk cost and they just need to do it. And there's yep. no reason not to, but part of it might be that while they're talking the good talk and fighting the good fight and saying, yeah, nobody has to come back into the office until at least July. That doesn't mean that August 1st, it's like, all right, well, we said until at least July. Now it's August 1st. Let's go. It's, you know, yeah. a brown line stop right next to you. 
Uh, and I think that will, uh, you know, that'll, that'll push a lot of different things um, and a lot of different narratives. If companies wait, if companies wait too long or don't want to do it, then, like I said, you know, you, you asked for a timeline. I think it's two, maybe like mid 2022 that mm. we start to see that $800,000 box become a $600,000 box or, you know, maybe even less than I'm not in any position to make any sort of predictions on what the drop in housing prices will be. But, uh, you know, as expensive as it is out there, um, it'll be interesting to, to see how, because I think that'll drive a lot of people's information uh, because California is I mean, it's the first economy in the world. And you guys are probably the most insulated test case for something like this. Yeah. You're right. It's definitely going to be an experiment. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So speaking of the pre- yeah. speaking of predictions, uh, 2031, where do you think we'll be 10 years from now? I think that we will be more, I think we'll be more remote than we were before, not necessarily out of necessity, but because we can, because it is truly not a thing. It, the pandemic will have started it, but people will have figured out that, I mean, we've always been, we've been globalizing and globalizing and globalizing for the longest time. And the world has gotten smaller and bigger simultaneously. And I think we were headed to a point where not living where you technically work, where your paycheck comes from, was going to become something more normal. I had, uh, I had several friends who worked from home, either all full-time or with some regularity, even before the pandemic. And because it, it, people saw that trend coming and in the absence of being able to pay people more, that is going to be something that companies use as an incentive. If they don't want to pay somebody or give somebody a 20% raise, somebody could easily look at, Hey, do you want five hours of your week back that you don't have to do commuting as, as, as a raise? Because I mean, there's really technically nothing more valuable than time. And that's what you're being paid for when you, for when you work. So you get that time back. Uh, I think we're also going to see a really interesting, uh, probably the biggest shift in how we view work since the, you know, the 40-hour work week. Uh, I think that there's going to need to be some sort of social contracts put in place between employers and their workers about what that actually looks like. Because there is now this mentality and this expectation of you're always on. Now we know you can always be on, whether you have your computer or your phone you're always kind of dialed in here. And there's going to need to be a, um, I don't wanna say like a worker's bill of rights because that sounds a little too Marxist, but thing where you have, um, something where you have an understanding of this is what a normal work week looks like in the way that we used to talk, you know, Dolly Parton talks about working our nine to five. You know, what, yeah. what is the nine to five going forward? I think it could be, you know, I, I get up at four o'clock every morning. That's just how my body's wired. I'm more, most productive from four to noon. Deal work, work day is like 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then I can, you know, do whatever I want to do after that. So, yeah. w- and with the globalization of work, you know, I, I meet with groups in London. We're building over in the UK. I've, I'm answering emails at 4.15, 4.30 in the morning before I go for a run. Mm-hmm. And that flexibility is also going to be something that's really big. Um, you know, from the education perspective to kind of put a bow on things, I think that we're going to see probably a 20% reduction in the amount of the number of colleges, um, not necessarily universities, but of those, you know, of those colleges that you think, oh yeah, okay, that's right there. You know, that's a 1500 person uh, campus. I think there's going to be more consolidation. And so if you were to list all the campuses and all the colleges in the United States, I think, I think we're going to be down at least 20%. And I think uh, that might be conservative. Um, in 2031, I think that it could be uh, more substantial than that, depending upon how much consolidation takes place and how socially acceptable it becomes to go to a junior college for two years and eliminate those one-on-one classes. So do you think that uh, we're going to see a lot more digital nomads out there or are people going to sort of find their place like somewhere less expensive and then just stay there? Or are we going to see people roaming more? I think that we might see um, might see something of a little bit of an interstate or interstate passport system, if you will, where you don't need a passport to go from Tennessee to Kentucky, but you uh, you know you have the ability to temporarily live in multiple places throughout the course of the year. You know, if I want to live in Chicago from June to September, and then I want to live in Austin from September to December, and then I want to live in 
I, no, I really don't want to live in Florida, um, North Carolina, um, outside of hurricane season, you know, January through March, and you repeat that cycle and you have the ability to do that. I think that that is where uh, you're going to see the kind of, if, if there's nomad lifestyle, that's where you're going to see it. And I think that will become more of the norm in the, you know, from the 20 to 30 year old range. That's certainly something that I would have considered at that point where it was, that's where it became very feasible to move. That's really, really interesting because it's almost like timeshare is coming back, right? You could actually say, I'm going to live in these places for this, for these durations. And I just want to pay, you know, this, this specific price. I mean, that, that would be yeah, very, I pay, see that. I pay $20,000 a year to have access to any of these places, but I have to live in this unit or this place for at least two months or something like that. Right. And, um, you know, that I think is something that we will see uh, or that we should see at the very least. Um, and as people have kids and, you know, it just become, it's, it, it's just a pain to move. They won't want to yeah. do that as much. And so the appeal won't be there. So there's still going to be the, you know, setting up shop and putting down your roots. I don't think that goes anywhere uh, because ultimately you need those connections and you want to have your social circle, but when it's less important and you're, you're less tied down from a responsibility perspective, I think that there's, we're going to see more fluidity, um, and I think that will will change and inform how we, uh, you know, how we build and how we view where we live. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I love the I love the different topics. I love talking about you know both of those are really close to my heart that they really need to be disrupted. And that was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. So, what's the best way for somebody to get in touch with you if they wish to? Uh, yeah, anybody who wants to contact me, uh, like I said, I'm at, I'm at, with CA Ventures. Uh, my email is. Um, my B Kirschenbaum, K-I-R-S-H-E-N-B-A-U-M at ca-ventures.com. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. You know, this is, uh, you asked me what I was passionate about at the beginning. I like thinking about where the world is going. I like thinking about how we can make people's lives better. Uh, ultimately, that's that's how I see my, my role on a day-to-day -day basis is making people's lives better, making the world a better place. Fantastic. Well, I'll put your contact information in the show notes too. So thank you very much, sir. Great talking with you. You too, Chris. Have a great day. You too. Bye.